0: This paper advances a theory that is not obviously incoherent or metaphysically impossible. Um, That may sound like faint praise, but it means that Mitch is already in the top quintile, perhaps pot decile, of constitutional theories right out of the gate. With this paper, he brings the total number of intellectually coherent non-originalist theories up to two. Uh, In particular, I think Mitch gets at least one very important thing very right. He asks the question, what is the law? Constitutional theory ought to answer legal questions, not just prescriptive or policy questions. So it ought to be responsible, in Mark Greenberg's phrase, to a theory of what the law is. I think that's absolutely correct. And the other theorists have an obligation to think very hard about his point. So what is the law? What do the social facts tell us? Here the paper looks around and sees two kinds of things. We have legal rules, and we have principles, general norms, like states matter, or the national government has power adequate to the nation's needs, which can be combined in a weighted sum. So here's the second good thing the paper does. Unlike other pluralist theories, which tend to combine incommensurables without really saying how, you know, the pie green and the Civil War argument, Mitch's principles have common measures of implicatedness and weight. So they can be combined into a single truth maker and generate real answers. That's why the theory Mitch offers, unlike many pluralist theories, is logically coherent at its core. Unfortunately, I think it is also false. And the reason why it's false has to do with this insightful quotation from Joseph Raz. The way a culture understands its own practices and institutions is not separate from what they are. As I see it, Mitch has too flat an account of our legal practice. We don't understand our legal rules as constituted by the weighing of principles just one level up. Six parts tax, two parts liberty, three parts federalism, one part separation of powers. Instead, our norms come prepackaged with officially recognized accounts of their grounds and accounts of those grounds grounds and so on. Lower level conclusions rest on higher level premises. DC houses need fire alarms because of a regulation adopted in year X under a city ordinance enacted in year Y under authorized by statute passed in year Z, exercising a power conferred at the founding and so on until we reach some rule that rests directly on non-legal social facts. This process, to my mind, doesn't have to use principles. And while a legal system could use principles, and many do in this, something like this way, ours, in crucial respects, does not. In fact, it might look something rather more like the originalism that Mitch decries. To start with, do we need principles? Are they baked into the nature of law? I doubt it. Other normative systems seem to do quite well without them. Think of English spelling. That we spell cat as C-A-T and not K-A-T, follows pretty much directly from the social facts, with no obvious mediating layer of spelling principles in between. It's hard to say precisely what social facts those are, but you don't necessarily need principles, or at least principles that act in precisely this manner, to get there. Now, law is more complex than spelling. Ground-level rules like don't murder don't exist in isolation. They depend on other things within the legal system. And many scholars follow H.L.A. Hart in identifying those other things as other rules, secondary rules, by which we recognize, change, and adjudicate the primary ones. So assuming that Hart, for the moment, is right, what do we need the principles for? How are they meaningfully distinct from other kinds of secondary rules? One answer is that principles are more vague or general than secondary rules. But this is, in some ways, a choice of terminology. Rules can be as vague or specific as society might wish. And many deep secondary rules are actually quite specific. Say, what the queen in parliament enacts is law. To translate this as a principle, that what the queen in parliament enacts is very, very weighty, doesn't change much. And as the 14th Amendment shows, before we can even say something like, text matters. We might need to use lots of complicated legal rules even to figure out what text is. A second answer is that principles, unlike other norms, interact through this process of vector addition. But this, too, is primarily a choice, which suggests, as I think in this draft, in note 129, that principles might not be purely additive. They might combine in other ways or be lexically ordered. So principles of class A always trump principles of class B. But if principles can be strict as well as flexible, and if they can have any kind of logical ordering, then it seems to me that literally any normative system can be modeled in this way. Rewording it in terms of principles in particular doesn't do very much work. We might as well just cut to the question, what legal norms are or are not supported by our social facts, which is what Hart was asking already. I see two possible counters to this in the paper. One is that principles, unlike other secondary rules, are better equipped to deal with the habit of social facts to change organically. But this fails to distinguish between changes in the legal system, like the enactment and repeal of statutes, and changes of the legal system that alter its criteria of validity. For instance, it's true that the rules of chess might change over time. We might just play chess differently in the year 3010. But for that to happen, we don't need a separate, already recognized rule of chess that these rules are subject to future alteration by widespread practice. That's a fact about chess, not a norm of chess. If the social facts change, then the rules change too, whether they're mediated by a layer of principle or not. Similarly, in the US, the president right now can't declare himself emperor. If he did, and everyone went with it, then I guess he would be emperor. But that's because the rules we'd be using in that world aren't the ones we use now. Legal systems, to my mind, don't need a reference to principles in order to be able to respond to those kinds of changes. The other possible counter is a very deep argument, on which I hope Mitch will write more, that's contained in a paragraph on page 48. There he distinguishes principles from other secondary rules by arguing that principles don't have to meet the same threshold of social agreement. A weaker social consensus just produces a weaker principle. If principles really can tolerate a greater amount of social disagreement than rules, that would be a strong argument in their favor. But Mitch's answer here seems to me quite wrong. First, his claim that weak agreement produces weak rules seems to contradict other parts of his account. If principles are grounded on social facts, then the strength of the principle is itself something for people to agree on, not a measure of that agreement. Say we all agree that human dignity is a relatively weak principle in our system. The fact that we strongly agree on that shouldn't make the principle itself any stronger, proving us all wrong in thinking it weak. Second, in a society that really has radical disagreement, say, between the two sides in the English Civil War, Occam's razor suggests that there's no unified law on certain questions, not that there are two diametrically opposed principles, each at 50% strength, which cancel each other out. So we still need some threshold of minimum social agreement to support the existence of any particular principle. Third, when people disagree about the identity and strength of principles, what are they disagreeing about? Does that very disagreement show that we haven't met the threshold? If so, then disagreement over principles is just as bad for Mitch as disagreement over rules is for Hart. If not, any solution that works for Mitch ought to be able to rework to work for Hart II. Switching to terms of principles hasn't really moved the ball. Fourth, systems of relatively determinate secondary rules might actually have fewer problems with disagreement because people might be more likely to agree on what those rules are. Many judges and lawyers might be surprised to learn, say, that it's legal to possess a switchblade on a guano island if you have only one arm. But this is definitely part of the law, as they all agree on the sta- legal status, the relevant portions of 15 and 18 U.S.C. The idea is that if you have only one arm, you can't open a folding blade. You just have to use a switchblade. By contrast, I see virtually no likelihood of meaningful agreement on the relative weight in our system of text, federalism, and human dignity. I think principles are not required by the nature of law. They're contingent. They might be used by some societies, not by others. So does our society use them? Here, too, I think the answer is largely no. It's surely true that many of our legal norms are shaped like principles and can be very important, like maxims of equity, anti-circumvention norms, like no man shall profit by his own wrong, and so on. But is our legal system at its highest level generally shaped by principles? I think not. As a matter of rhetoric, we often see gestures along the lines of states matter, dignity matters, and so on. But lawyers' rhetoric isn't quite the same thing as legal grounds. Lawyers often portray their clients as sympathetic in ways that have nothing to do with the case at hand. But equity aside, there's no general norm that the more sympathetic party is more likely right on the law. Being sympathetic in a cosmic sense might sway judges, but it's not an officially accepted ground for legal conclusions. And as I've argued in prior work, what a society officially accepts and defends as part of its law all the way down helps tell us what that law actually is. In this light, the rhetorical principles Mitch identifies seem less like load-bearing arguments on their own and more like epiphenomena of other legal conclusions. For instance, courts invoking the adequate national power principle often describe it as a heuristic for the founders' motives and purposes. It helps us make guesses about the law they created without itself carrying independent legal force. Suppose I called for repealing the Commerce Clause, or just some clause in Article 1 to be chosen later at random many people would object on the ground that if we did that, Congress might no longer have power adequate to the nation's needs, which suggests that the adequate power principle is not itself a legal norm resting on its own bottom directly on social facts, but a consequence of other actually existing legal norms that might turn out to leave federal power adequate or not. The principle itself doesn't ground anything. It's a conclusion, not a premise. The same is true of the limits on national regulatory power. As I see it, our system treats this as an inference from a claim that an enumeration presupposes something not enumerated. It would be odd if Article I, written the way it is, turned out to confer plenary federal power. But as we've seen just now, that's just odd. It's not impossible. We still have to see what Article I actually says. And if we adopted a federal plenary power amendment, the situation would not be one of a strong text matters principle outweighing a weak limited power principle. Rather, the limited power norm wouldn't be a principle of our legal system at all. Put it another way, think of the judges today, you know, without naming names, who rely most heavily on principles, who put this model most effectively into practice. Are they recognized by the profession as the best models of judicial argument and legal rigor? Um, or are we making a mistake? by looking at the surface level of judicial rhetoric and analyzing his exemplary legal argument, what's instead widely seen as poor analysis or gauzy reasoning. Mitch's picture is most plausible, I think, in cases like the excuse me, the pine tar example, when we're trying to fit certain facts within our existing norms of, and orthodox legal materials. But as in his discussion of Judge Posner's argument, the important question is what the orthodox norms and materials are. Treating every case as one of these liminal cases strikes me as a recipe for confusion, not clear understanding. In fact, when we look for the orthodox grounds of legal arguments, we don't always say principles like the ones Mitch describes. But we might see many features commonly associated with originalism. We ground outcomes in constitutional rules, which we take as having been established by the document's enactment in the late 18th century. We take precedence as offering defeasible accounts of these rules and never as overriding them. We presume the absence of legal breaks or discontinuities from the founding and so on. Now, Mitch may disagree with this reading of our practices, and that's fine. As I said, this is absolutely the right thing for us to be disagreeing about. But I would encourage him in future work to train relatively less fire on theories that fail to take account of jurisprudence, theories like minimalism or Scalian original public meeting and so on, which, to be honest, are kind of fish in a barrel. Instead, it'd be useful to take on other theories, those of Jeff Poginowski and Kevin Walsh, of Will Bode, and I humbly add myself, that try to take his basic point to heart and to base their arguments on theories of American law. Because again, I think Mitch is entirely right that figuring out what the law is, is what all of us are ultimately here to do.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, I feel a little bit like Randy from yesterday, which was, that was a little fast, so I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to. Uh, I I hope you'll send me send that to me and then I'll figure out what to say in response but a a few things uh, did hit me that I'll try to respond to briefly criticizing Scalia is like fish in a barrel great okay so if everybody here uh, writes in their next articles that Scalia was obviously wrong about his theory of law then I will uh, no longer have lengthy discussions about it I'll just cite to all of your papers (laughs) Uh, I, I do agree that that ultimately I want to I, I ought to spend more time and I will spend more time on, on uh, Jeff's work yours, Will's, which I think are in the direction of just the way we should be going this is an, I hope ultimately this will be an article, I hope to publish it in a large journal where I sort of have all the pieces of the view sketched out and then I'll write a book, which is my plan for next year to develop all of the the parts in in greater depth Uh, but I I, I agree that that's where that's ultimately where I want to go and show why I don't think that inclusive originalism is uh... for example is the right view I will say on that particular point lawyers rhetoric isn't the same as grounds agreed (laughs) Uh, On the question of Principles. Principles here I define in a stipulated way. They are the norms of the system that ride upon social facts without other normative intermediaries. They could have weight, and they generally do, but they don't have to. So for example, states aren't allowed to secede is rule in the way we normally think of rules versus principles. But on my account, it would be a principle because it's just riding upon social facts and it's not determined by uh, normative intermediaries, that is, other norms of the legal system. Uh, I, I think that there was a lot of similarity between my account and Hart's. I think that there are a lot of problems with Hart's account of law, or at least as people's understanding of Hart's account of law. I think the rule of recognition is very good for delimiting a legal system delimiting a legal system so the existence of a legal system is created by the recognitional practice that he identifies i don't think that he actually is entirely clear in the concept of law always that the legal norms themselves are all deducible from a conversion pra- recognitional practice among legal officials In any event, in so far as that is certainly the standard reading of heart, I just think that's much too demanding. So I think that the rule of recognition establishes the system, and then once the system arises, the actual norms develop in this sort of way, that there are low-level things which just ride upon the social facts, and they combine in this way. But we we disagree about that. Uh, I'll stop there. (coughs)